Welcome, everybody. Thank you for listening to A Papa Story of Us, presented by the Ohio State Anthropology Department. I'm here with Anai Soroke, who's one of our newest faculty members who just started in the fall. I and mean, we're really excited to bring you this podcast. It's January 24th. And I'm going to start with the first question. So to begin, uh, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, having me. To begin, can we talk about a new book or article you've been reading recently that struck you, something related to your work or anything related to, you know, academia? Yeah, so recently I've been reading a lot on community health and disaster recovery because a lot of my work is at that intersection. So I've been reading this interesting article that's a framework around the community health surveillance for the U.S.-Mexico border, particularly focusing on the U.S. Gulf Coast and thinking about how can we better collect data that allows us to not only predict which communities are more vulnerable to disasters, but how can we provide and support like interventions. So the idea is to mix not only data from different like health departments and national surveys, but also incorporate new cohorts. So thinking about like collecting new data for communities in a longitudinal way, because a lot of the Gulf Coast is really one of the areas that's most hit by um, natural hazards. Right, yeah like hurricanes particularly. So we need to have better systems, surveillance systems, really to better measure and, and understand the dynamics and provide interventions. Is there an emphasis in this work on like community co-production a little bit, or is it more like we need to kind of make sure that folks know what they need when a disaster strikes? Is it kind of both of those? or It's both, but I think it would be, it's more of a top-down approach. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to bridge different data sets. So the United States has a lot of different, like from the nat- nat- National Institute of Health, but there's also like at the, the Department of Health of each right. border state, yeah. and then bringing then community experiences like in a cohort setting, for example, so collecting data longitudinally around a particular population. So when you look at census tract, for example, you know that certain communities are more vulnerable because right. they have certain variables like socioeconomic status, et cetera, that make them more at risk. So the idea would be like to have all those data sets gather in one position so that we can better predict how to respond for future events because the United States is facing more and more hazards like hurricanes particularly. So the idea would be to support Right, it feels An like intervention. And then obviously more researchers that see these data sets can then do more of that co-production in the bottom up approach with particular communities, like targeting right. communities of interest. Yeah. Well, yeah, it feels like the once in a hundred year storm is happening more than once in a hundred years. Unfortunately, so yes. That's, that's where we are. Climate change Climate is change. real and yeah. it's here and it's now. So yeah. And the Gulf Coast is one of the regions that really is being most affected. And then you have obviously like California. Like I think every part of the United States has its own hazard right right? so you have in the east a lot of like heat the gulf coast you have hurricanes and then you have you know in california and the west wildfires um, and drought so yeah it's unfortunate but more frequent and it's costing a lot of u.s dollars to the country for not doing proper mitigation and then when they do get rain they get the rain that we were seeing lately the torrential what are they calling atmospheric river yes Exactly, because the problem with that type of rain is that it's not getting properly absorbed by the soil, so it creates flooding, and the city is not necessarily prepared because there's a lot of climate denial, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, and that really, like, continues to affect, you know, certain communities, especially those that are historically marginalized and vulnerable. Yeah. Um, We started touching on this, but uh, could you briefly define, I mean, your work really focuses on insecurity in the realm of this climate disaster stuff. So I'm wondering if you could define the different types of insecurity that you focus on 
And uh, why is it important to approach these topics by looking at the various forms? Like why would we want to see it from different angles? Is that really critical? Would you yeah, say? no, that's a really good question. So yes, a lot of my work looks at how households and communities prepare for and respond to disasters. And disasters, just to clarify, these are events that not are not natural. These are hazards that impact vulnerable zones. And right. really the governance and the lack of government response is really what's key and critical in developing the disaster. And I particularly focus on insecurity, so resource insecurity, thinking about food, water, and energy. These are like lack of these resources, availability, quality, reliability. And a lot of the literature, anthropological, for example, had really focused traditionally on food insecurity. Right. right? It's, you know, it's been over 50 years of that literature is very strong and robust, although much of it has not really focused on a disaster context. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, in the last 20 years or so, a lot of um, scholars, particularly anthropologists, have also started looking at water insecurity and thinking about, again, access, availability, quality, reliability. But then when it comes to the energy, that area has been really understudied because, you know, places like the United States where you think that, you know, you have this big centralized grid systems, then, you know, these re issues really don't happen a lot, but they do. And because of climate change, because of more frequent and intense weather events, we're seeing that these critical infrastructures like energy systems are continuing to fail. So like in 2020, we had winter storm Uri in Texas, yeah, and that really that. created like a cascading effect, right? So the idea of thinking about not only food and water, but also energy together is because, for example, the moment a hazard hits a critical infrastructure like energy, you are without power. So the moment that you're power in your house, you know, your appliances are not working. So that affects your ability to cook food. Mm -hmm. um, but then also it, it's energy systems are connected to water systems. So the moment the power goes out, your water system will go out. Right. So it, you have this dynamic where, you know, at the household, you're having these intersections of all these three insecurities co-occurring, really. Right, yeah. uh, and when you have a declared disaster like Winter Storm Uri, or in my case, um, I do a lot of work in the Caribbean, in Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria. That really showed that it's not just the energy loss, it's also the food storage and availability. And then, for example, people that have suffered from illnesses like diabetes, for example, they need their like insulin. Mm -hmm. And when they don't have their, their insulin needs to be refrigerated, refrigerated right? right? So it's like it becomes, and then if they don't have proper foods because they cannot cook it, then they're eating unhealthy foods. Right. And then access of water is very challenging because, again, the connection with the energy. So I hope that's like, you know, it's a kind cycle. Of, yeah, yeah, they're all entwined. Of, yeah, so they all really feed off each other in one way or the other. So the idea with my work moving forward is to be able to try to map what are the key variables that are being impacted, right? Is it really like reliability? Is it accessibility? Like what really does happen in the wake of the disaster? And how does food interfere with water? How does water interfere with food? How these two interfere with energy and vice versa at the household level? Because we can at least a lot of my research and observations have shown that it's almost like a cascading effect. The right. larger systems of food, water, and energy at the state level fail, and as a result, that creates cascading impacts at the household. And that's what's been kind of understudied. So anthropologists, public health um, scholars, 
people in geography and other disciplines have kind of gotten into the food water nexus and then we have sustainability scholars that do food water and energy but that's mm -hmm. from a sustainability perspective not really thinking about the lack of these resources and how they manifest at the household so that's where a lot of my work and what i think those three elements are are key because we're seeing more frequent intense hazards that become disaster they don't have to become a disaster but because the critical infrastructures are so weak yeah. they automatically shut down services for the households and then they have to like engage in innovative ways of coping you might have heard years ago the term the heater eat dilemma right the households in the united states have to choose between power saving or eating well this is happening more now at that intersection of the three insecurities Sure, yeah, and I'm thinking of the places where they have to do rolling blackouts to ensure that this whole system doesn't go down. So then you don't know when you're going to have power throughout a storm. Exactly, right? So like in places like Texas, a uh, place that is naturally not area where it snows and you're having these events and it's critically affecting this infrastructure, right? The dynamics of having to deal with food, water, energy insecurity during a storm is very different when you're doing it in the Caribbean sure. during the, um, the hurricane season. Right. So it's also thinking about how different hazards impact differently. Yeah. How the different hazards impact the infrastructures and at the same time, how that unfolds into these compounded insecurities or co-occurring insecurities. Great. Yeah. Thanks. I want to talk about your field site in particular. What makes Puerto Rico a key site of focus for the research that you're doing? Why would why would you say that you're using it as like the focus, obviously, beyond your own personal mm -hmm. backstory that we can get into if you'd like, but also what can the study of this island tell us about global trends in disaster management and these insecurities? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. It's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, sure. So Puerto Rico is an unincorporated territory of the United States. It's been like that since 1898. Puerto Rico has had a lot of challenges with management at the state level. So, again, going into these, like, key um, infrastructure. So our energy system, it's um, one of the most complex systems in the United States because of the amount of people that it serves. And because Puerto Rico is an island with, like, a very high central mountain. Sure, so yeah. that makes the maintenance challenging. And then when you have negligence, then that further exacerbates the possibilities mm -hmm. of hazards happening in and really degrading the grid. So... When you have that and then our food system, so we transition from a agricultural majority production island into an industrial. So more than 80% of our food comes outside of Puerto Rico. So we're highly dependent of the outside. And because of our political um, relationship with the United States, we are locked in the sense that we can only receive foods from U.S. ships. So that means that places like Dominican Republic or others that are very close by, they really cannot import give us, food. yeah, mm -hmm. import food unless it goes through U.S. Through ports, US. right? And then on the water side, we have a large water system as well that serves more than 95% of the population. The rest of the population is served by smaller drinking water systems that are regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency, but we know that these are rural communities, mostly impoverished communities, so they have a lot of challenges with water quality. So put those three cases, right, those three experiences together in the colonial and dynamics that occur in Puerto Rico, 
because we are an island in the Caribbean and very prone to hazards, particularly to hurricanes and also to earthquakes, when these hazards continue to impact the grid and there's a lack of response at the state level, it really creates the perfect recipe, unfortunately, for disasters. So back in 2017, the Atlantic hurricane season was one of the most devastating for the United States and its territories, right? Hurricanes Irma and Maria hit Puerto Rico in September, then it went straight to Florida. Yeah. Irma did devastating effects, and then we had Harvey in Texas hit. Mm -hmm. So Puerto Rico becomes a really critical place to study how food, water, energy, and security, and its impacts to health, both physical health and physiological health, because there's a lot of delegated roles and responsibilities from the state to its people. So when you have these systems having this cascading impacts of lack of resources, then you really have just, you know, Puerto Rico has more than 40% of the population reliant on federal funding, including like food stamps and all these different type of like medic Medicaid, etc. High unemployment rates, right? So its social economic profile makes it very vulnerable for people to be able to bounce back quickly from the impacts of hazards. So you have a combination of both state negligence and then and a, a very challenging social economic profile for self-sufficiency. Um, so it creates, again, a perfect recipe to study and to really try to understand how humans can respond to and adapt to these disasters. Because, you know, people are not really sitting down. They're really then relying on each other. They're using autogestion, which means self-management. But then we have to critically think, how is that self-management happening? And to what extent are they even capable right. of doing it? And to what extent it becomes not the ability to bounce back, but really a survival. So as many people may know, Puerto, Rico, Puerto Rican residents are U.S. citizens, and many have migrated to the United States. Yeah, I was going to ask about migrant Yes, histories. so more than 100,000 people migrated after the impacts of Hurricane uh, Maria, which killed more than 3,000 people. That was more than Hurricane Katrina back in 2005, right? So to your question of why Puerto Rico becomes this critical case study for understanding these insecurities is because the three systems, food, water, and energy, are really degrading. You have a lot of state negligence, you have challenges at the local level, and you have people really trying to self, you know, self-manage and survive. So a lot of my work is trying to uplift the voices of cases that have been successful in this, but also trying to be more critical and, and challenging why they're having to do that and, you know, and contextualizing it in the macro-political sense. And then, you know, thinking more now the health profile of these communities. It's not just one hurricane, right? We had Hurricane Irma and then Hurricane Maria in 2017, but then we had earthquakes in 2019. Then we have the global pandemic, which is, right, um, everybody has felt the effects of that. And then now recently in 2022, in September, we had the impact of Hurricane Fiona. So for the disaster recovery cycle, we should be, you know, it's been five years, but every other year we're getting a very major event. And it doesn't even have to be a category five hurricane. Hurricane Fiona was a category one, but because the grid and the right. infrastructure is already so weak. Degraded because of the other storms. Exactly. You know, it's already a, a site that these insecurities, at least from a qualitative observational perspective, are very much present. So a lot of my work is trying to just document that and seeing then other cases, because I, I, 
I see a lot of in the news and in my work that the United States, you know, mainland is really experiencing some of these insecurities as well in places like Mississippi, mis mm -hmm. in places like California. It's just that it's still underdeveloped because you will think that the global north, quote unquote, the United States particularly because of its economy, it's exempt from all of these issues, yeah. but it's really happening um, in their backyards, like I would like to say. I wanted to ask uh, to transition a little bit about like how you work. I wanted to ask about your experience as an, as an interdisciplinary scholar. So what sorts of coalitions and working arrangements have been most fruitful for you, like working across disciplines and yeah. um, areas? And how does working with folks from differing disciplines assist in your research ga gaining this perspective, this kind of holistic perspective on how these insecurities impact folks? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I I love working in interdisciplinary teams. So interdisciplinarity is the ability to bring two or more disciplines and integrate them mm -hmm. to have, in a way, a little bit of more of a holistic understanding of the phenomena at hand. So I think that disciplinary work is extremely needed for certain areas of research, right? Maybe like in medicine or and I can challenge that a bit, but <laughs> maybe like in biology or like, you know, um, some of the quote unquote hard sciences. Yeah. But when you're thinking about social problems, environmental problems, we we find that not there's not one solution for these issues, especially when you're involving people. So mm -hmm. for me, it's even beyond interdisciplinarity, it's also about transdisciplinarity. So bringing also the people that are being directly impacted or stakeholders into the conversations because they are on the ground right beyond the science, really it being impacted and addressing these issues yeah. at hand, right? Those local ways of knowing how to deal with the problems too are critical. Exactly, exactly. So for me, interdisciplinarity is very important because it allows to bring different pieces to this big puzzle of climate change or disasters. Disaster research is inherently interdisciplinary. So, you know, scholars from um, anthropology, sociology, geography, public health, all bring different important aspects throughout the four um, stages of the um, emergency, emergency management cycle, mitigation, recovery, response, and so forth. So the idea of doing interdisciplinary collaboration is not just working with different people, but it's also bringing you know, the spatial component, sure. the social structures, the culture, and the health, right, from those four disciplines, for example, to really holistically try to understand how how communities, in my case, and, and households particularly, can respond and adapt to this. So that's why I think interdisciplinary is, is key for that. I also do think that one of the fruits from that is that um, it breaks a disciplinary silos. So it kind of like, oh, I'm just thinking about the cultural phenomenon and what cultural norms are being like most used, or for example, water sharing arrangements to yeah. address water insecurity. But then I want to also think about how spatially certain communities like rural communities might be able to do water sharing versus the urban community right so i think uh, that's helpful and then in teams you know it's just i don't know there's something about working in a team and and this is like in a more romanticized way right there's interdisciplinary collaboration that not there are always for for fitful and that would seem like they're going to be great and yeah, then you never know there's definitely <laughs> your cases where they're not really great and that's the challenge right because you really have to be open for collaborations yeah. like not every not everybody is open to that even though it might be something exciting you might bring just one person bring different disciplines together which is also sure. interdisciplinary but for me it's more 
more about the team and making a team that we can build off each other. And that takes a lot of time, like capacity building, team science. And there's a lot of literature on how to do that. And it yeah. also really depends on the institutions, the universities. And OSU, for example, is really a great em environment to do interdisciplinary work because they have different centers and opportunities to support and like promote it. Yeah, but yeah. there's many other universities that don't do that. And that challenges the opportunities because professors like myself that are in the in the tenure track um, and at an assistant level, we want to get tenure, right? And we really want to have an institution that, if we're going to do this type of work, that supports us. Yeah. There's other universities that that is not rewarded, so that might be challenging for, for other folks to engage in, in a way that is meaningful and, yeah, and supportive. Great. Awesome. I wanted to ask you a bit about your plan, the Community Environmental Health and Justice Collaboratory Lab. Um, why is it important for your work to provide opportunities for hands-on learning to students, and uh, how can students get involved once it gets going? Yeah. So the lab, which is hopefully starting now in spring 2023, is going to be co-led with Dr. Barbara Piperada as well, and hopefully we'll have other faculty from the department join. This lab is really the baby of the culture, health, and the environment lab at Arizona State University, mm -hmm. led by doctors uh, Amber Woodich and Alexandra Brewer-Slade. Um, they started the lab over 10 years ago, and their vision for the lab was really to do a space for students to learn cutting-edge anthropological research methods, and they have these really big uh, international collaborations where they bring students to different parts of the world during the summer to collect data with them, and then they have the lab as a space to like do data management, data cleaning, analysis, and even co-author with their students. So I'm taking, you know, that I, I was training that lab during my PhD program, and I was really inspired by the opportunity to not only learn about cutting-edge research, but also the opportunity to advance uh, my own CV and, and learning skills and even, like, do peer mentorship. So there was graduate students as myself, but there's undergrads as well. So the opportunity to learn from my fellow graduate students, but then also teach and learn yeah. from the undergrads, right? So that was really exciting. So in OSU, the idea is to expand on that vision, to do cutting-edge work. I have several projects that are community-engaged, so the idea is not only to learn about what is research and data management and using different softwares like MaxUDA and Vivo, but it's also to do community public face, what I call public facing anthropology. So is doing infographics, story maps, right. website, what our community partners need to share our resources, right? Science communication in a lay language to different stakeholders. And then the other part of it is also to support professional development, right? The university is a big space. Obviously there's there's areas where you can go and and edit your CV and learn about like how to better uh, market it yourself. But you know, um, the the lab is also a space for students to put a lot of their their training skills into their CVs and then have an opportunity for peer guidance and then bring in a person from the OSU Department of Professional Development to teach them how to better market themselves because sometimes students don't necessarily want to continue to do a PhD program yeah. and we want their anthropology degree to mean more and know how the skills translate. Yeah. Exactly, have skills translated for them to find, you know, the jobs that they're they're meant to to do. So yeah, so that's really the the idea. It's it's rooted on justice and and ethics. It's rooted on the idea that anthropology is um, more than studying others. It's really about 
you know, the anthropology of the future, which for me is this idea of being in conversation with community, co doing a lot of co-production, and just learning about um, what is research and how can we do it in a way that is ethical and, and engageful with, with the communities that it serves. So. Yeah, so students, this semester, we have the initial cohort, just like the test of like, you know, we have right now eight students and they will be working on four different projects. The first couple of weeks is really getting city training and research ethics, which is city training learning about data management and being trained in the software of MaxUDA. And then they will be put into one of four projects and they'll work on the semester on that. And hopefully in the fall, we'll have a new cohort. And then by spring of 2024, we'll make it a course. That way more students can enroll. And yeah, we look forward to also engaging other faculty from the department that have other exciting projects and they can like be part of the lab and, and support students in their learning um, experience. How exciting. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. I wanted to close by uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about whatever you'd like, anything we didn't really cover, or anything you'd like our listeners to know about your teaching, your research, anything along those lines. Ooh, that's a big one. I think, what would I like to talk about? Well, I'm teaching two courses this semester, Disasters and Health, and Health and Healing in Latin America and the Caribbean. The idea of these courses is to continue to have critical conversations about the causes of disasters and, and how health is shaped by the environment and really thinking and using critical medical anthropology, so thinking about the social, political, and historical legacies that shape these two separate yet at times related topics. Um, I'm really excited about the opportunity to be developing these type of courses moving forward and thinking more about environmental justice and, and community health because we're in a time where unfortunately these events continue to happen more and they're more frequent. They're happening not only in the Caribbean where I do a lot of my work, but really happening in the United States and really happening also in places like Ohio, right? Like um, heat is a big problem in Ohio and I, I hope that students are able to to have not only theoretical tools to understand why these phenomena happen, but really apply tools. That's a big part of the work that I do for them to really sense that this is happening in their own backyards yeah. and how can they be prepared to support moving moving forward. So I think that's a, a big part and something exciting. And I'm also currently a, an environmental health fellow with Harvard School of Public Health. And that fellowship program is looking at scholars that do work at the intersections of social and environmental determinants of health. So a lot of my work with them is also, again, thinking about disaster response and how communities are experiencing issues of food, water, and energy insecurity. And as part of that, I'm going to be developing a photo voice project. So they're using pictures. Mm -hmm. um, it's a community-engaged methodology because you give residents the opportunity, or participants in this case, the opportunity to document their own experiences. Yeah. They take the photos, right? They take the photos based of a script. So the idea is that because these issues of food, water, energy in disaster context has been understudied in the literature, we're going to do a three-phase where we're going to do interviews, then we're going to enter a photo voice of nine days, and then at the end we're going to do a post-photo voice elicitation interview where they will dive more into the pictures they took 
and why they took these pictures. It's gonna be 100 people in Puerto Rico, 50 in the metropolitan area, 50 in the west side. And what's really most exciting part, at least for me, of the project is that we're gonna be doing an art gallery. So we're gonna do a- Oh, fantastic. We're gonna do an online version of it for people that are not in Puerto Rico or also for Puerto Rican communities that can attend to the physical. Then we're gonna have two physical, one in the metropolitan area, one in the west side. And I'm working with El Arenero, which is a VFX studio in Puerto Rico. They're going to be having VR sets. So people are going to have like an immersive experience with the pictures. And then, you know, we're going to have a space for like critical reflection and bringing stakeholders. So, you know, that's really the things that drive me is doing the having the opportunity to show some of these, you know, sad in a way. Right. It's nobody really wants to be studying disasters, I Mm -hmm. think, in the right mind. But it is what's happening and want to be creating consciousness of how it's impacting different families. So the opportunity of doing it through an art gallery, right, with these pictures, creating these pictures, having quotes of the participants, and then having this VR immersive experiences, like something that I'm looking forward to. And that will hopefully happen at the end of this year or at the beginning of the spring of 2024. So be up for that. Look out soon. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much for the time. Really yeah, appreciate thank it. you for this the invitation. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good one. Have a good day. Bye-bye.